is the primacy of Scripture and the lens of holy tradition. Please stand. This is taken from one of the traditional collects of the Book of Common Prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a joy to have you uh, here at the uh, Anglican uh, Studies Program. Welcome to, uh, to Joan. Hello. Sorry, I'm late. Uh, well, and that brings me to my first topic. The one thing I'm going to be mean about is uh, please do your very best to, to be on time. Now, my being mean... I'll hardly say anything to you if you're not. So I'm asking you to do it because it's the right thing. It's very difficult once we get rolling to be distracted by people coming in. You're all so good looking. I'm already distracted, you see. So, uh, but when people are coming in and, and I want to be able to greet them and so that, you know, uh, pastorally. So it makes it difficult. So please be on time. And then also it, it keeps questions from coming up that we've already have covered. Um, so we, um, the, the, uh, the cost of, of the course should not um, keep anyone from taking the course. If you cannot afford it, speak to me uh, quietly. I have a special hat that you'll wear during the course, but other than that, no one will know. Um, but if you're auditing the course, it's, it's $50.00. And um, it's $75 if you're taking the course. What's the difference? Those taking the course are usually preparing or for or discerning ordination. Um, and uh, so they write many papers that I look at, et cetera, et cetera, and give them feedback on. The main reason for the papers is not to, to wow me with your intelligence, nor is it to write something that I would, would uh, agree with. Um, the main point of the papers um, is, uh, is to help people learn how to do Anglican theology. So let's say the, the topic was uh, um, on uh, the Theotokos, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'd want to know that as an Anglican, you're going to write firstly from the point of view of Scripture. What does Scripture say? Secondly, you would consult the early church fathers and mothers. What did they say? Especially where they spoke with one mind and one voice regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary. What did the ancient creeds say from the ecumenical councils? Um, was uh, Mary addressed in any way within the ancient liturgies, the worship of the church? So you would look to holy tradition. And then uh, um, thirdly then to look to the Anglican formularies. Uh, and if you don't know what Anglican formularies are, we will get to that. 
um, but to look at the Anglican formularies, maybe the writings of some of the great Caroline divines of post-Reformation Anglicanism, etc., uh, etc., et and then from there to come to your conclusion. Because this is how an Anglican does theology. First and foremost, the Word of God, Holy Scripture. Secondly, the tradition of the church. And then thirdly, uh, the Anglican formularies in the writings of the uh, Anglican reformers in each generation. And so th that's really what the exercise is about, is to get people thinking about how to do Anglican theology. Welcome, Bob. Good to have you here. Um, Bob, I was just saying that uh, for those who are taking the course, it's $75. For those auditing, it's $50. Those who are taking the course uh, are asked to write many papers. And that the, the real reason for the papers uh, is uh, not to uh, try to show me how intelligent you are, but rather to get people uh, to uh, learn how to practice doing Anglican theology. So if the topic was uh, Christology or atonement, you would look firstly at the Holy Scriptures, secondly at the tradition of the church, the writings of the early church fathers, mothers, the ancient liturgies, councils, and creeds. Hello, Paulina. And then lastly, the Anglican formularies and the writings of the English reformers in every generation from the time of the English Reformation uh, in every subsequent um, period. So, it, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know what the problem in the church is? It's individualism. No, the problem in the church is that people don't take Holy Scripture seriously. No, the problem in the church is sexuality and sexual brokenness. No, the problem is ecclesiology. Here's my theory. The problem in the church is that people don't know how to do theology. Okay? No one goes up to their mechanic and says, when they know nothing about cars, well, you know, I don't buy into the old, you know, you need an engine to run a car. I believe all cars can run on air. And, you know, because, you know, you haven't studied what it is to be a mechanic. No one goes into, you know, see a surgeon or a doctor and, and tells them how to, to operate. I don't know if you remember those ads where the, the surgeon's on the phone and he says, okay, now cut a two-inch deep, you know, in, you know, and he says, no one does this at home, and, you know, and then they sell you whatever the product is. But everyone thinks that they can uh, comprehend God and God's revelation. So the problem is, is that people have not been trained in doing theology. Not only have our seminaries failed to properly instruct those who are uh, studying for ordination and to go on to uh, academia, um, but our churches have failed. The average Joe and Jane in the, in the parish, parishes, should know how to do theology. God didn't reveal the truth in his son, Jesus Christ, so that uh, the bishops and the priests could know. Although it's very rare to find any bishops and priests that know either. But um, uh, it's really so that God's people may know of him and have a relationship with him. So that's the purpose for doing the paper. So if you're auditing the course, 
it's fifty dollars, seventy-five dollars uh, for those uh, who are uh, taking the course. If you do not have all the dates, I ask you uh, to let me know. I'll email them again to you, and because it's very important that you get them down on your calendar and do your very best to be here. Um, each time I've taught the Anglican Studies course in the past. I was constantly trying to do makeup classes, and it was just too difficult. And so it's very important to commit to the class. That's really the reason for making people pay for it, by the way. It's because when you put money down, you tend to be more committed, okay? Um, so please commit to them um, and, uh, uh, and try to, to be um, on, on time. Any questions about what we have just discussed? Yes, yes. And I do promise that every, all the monies collected will eventually go to, uh, to do something in the church. You know, it may help prayer walks or discretionary fund type stuff or that type of thing. Uh, I'm not going to pocket it. Or if I do, I'll go to confession. Anyway, um, uh, here's the first text. Is the Church of England Biblical? Uh, subtitle, an Anglican Ecclesiology. Does anyone know what the word ecclesiology means? Church. Right, our understanding of the church. It's a good word to know. So when, when people say, well, I don't believe in that, you can say, ah, oh, that's interesting. How would you comprehend that from an ecclesiological point of view? And then they go, uh, 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 and you sound very, very intelligent, you see. So, see, I don't really know anything. I just use big words, and then people say, he must be very smart, you see. Yeah. So, Is the Church of England Biblical and Anglican Ecclesiology by Colin Buchanan? It's, uh, sadly, as far as I know, not in print right now, so you have to get uh, copies that are being sold um, and uh, please read this, if you can, by December, our December meeting. There's two ways that you're going to learn in this, in this course. All right, it's not that I'm going to grill you on Buchanan the next time you come in, but there's going to be the class itself and then the readings to supplement the class and to kind of stir ideas up within you. Because Buchanan, although he's a far wiser man than myself, I don't agree with him on everything he wrote in this book. Okay, um, I think he's particularly weak in areas of ecclesiology, which is the great irony of it. I'm sure um, since this is being recorded, he'll write me and say, oh, really? <laughs> Whippa snappa? Um, but uh, in apostolic succession and so forth, I think he's a little weak. But... Overall, it shows someone who is very legitimately within the realm of Anglicanism, speaking from a slightly different uh, view than mine, and has a lot of profound things to say. But I think it's good to read people that, you know, if I taught this course and said you'll read 10 books all written by uh, Michael McKinnon, uh, that probably wouldn't be very good. So... Uh, please do your best to read this um, very, very uh, insightful book in many, many ways. And um, so it's not only the class, but also the readings that are so important uh, for us.
Yes. Yes. Um, the reading list. Are those books that we will be reading in their entirety? Yes. Well, no. There will be there will be certain books. Like um, I will probably assign at one point uh, a book by Callisto Ware. Uh, he was a Anglican who converted to Orthodoxy and changed his name from Tim to Callistos because I guess it sounded more orthodox or something. So anyway, Callistos uh, Ware, who's a uh, wonderful writer, um, and he has written a book called The Orthodox Church, and you'll be reading sections of that book, not that book in, in its entirety. Uh, I want you to read it to get a non-Roman Western influenced uh, history of the early church and then also to see a more patristic understanding of, of scripture and tradition and their relationship with one another. But uh, there will only be sections. But in general, yes, the answer is yes. It, it will be the whole book. And uh, so we'll, we'll talk about it. Well, a, a list of books that would be helpful, and then we're going to go uh, one by one because some of the I'm still debating between some texts, so that's why I can't get. But if I do accomplish that soon, I can do that. Send out the entire list. That probably would be helpful if I can put my mind to it. Yeah, yeah order them ahead of time. I, I will try to do that because that, that does make sense. Okay. Any questions before we proceed? Okay. Um, another text, if you would like, this is not required, uh, but uh, it is an excellent text, but it is not casual reading, okay? Uh, written by a very evangelical Anglican who happens actually to be one of the premier evangelical Anglican authors in the world and uh, highly respected by evangelicals throughout the world, and he's actually a member of our diocese, the Diocese of the Anglican Network in Canada and New England, and, uh, and, and that is um, J.I. Packer is his name, J.I. Packer. Um, so this is the supplemental text that's not required reading for you, but it's, it's an excellent text, but I remember I assigned it to our clergy and clergy-to-be, and I thought, well, you know, I, bet, I better read it so I know what I'm talking about. And I got on a plane, and I said, well, I have a long flight, so I could read most of this book. And within a few pages, I thought, what have I done to my poor clergy? Because it's, it's not an easy read, but it's a profound read. Um, so J.I. Packer, James Packer, J.I. Packer, P-A-C-K-E-R, and it's called Honoring the Written Word of God. Honoring the Written Word of God. Collected Shorter Writings of J.I. Packer. On the Authority and Interpretation of Scripture. I'll say that again. Honoring the written word of God, colon, collected shorter writings of J.I. Packer on the authority and interpretation of Scripture. 
so that's a non-required text, but if you're, uh, if you're very zealous and would like to read it, uh, please do. Uh, again, um, uh, J.I. Packer is a man uh, who's, uh, it will take me probably several hundred years in the next life of growing in theosis before I attain his level of intelligence, um, but he comes from a very different point of view. Uh, than where I would come from within the Anglican spectrum. There are things in, in the book I do disagree with, but it, it is, again, a profound text. In fact, I think was it you and Mike really liked that one. Is that right? Mike really liked, Mike really liked it. But Mike really liked it. Okay. Okay. All right. So, all right. The I'm going to hand this... this handout here, we are not going to go over all of it because it's very basic, And but I'm going to ask that you bring it back to subsequent classes because we will do different sections of it at, at different times, okay? Actually, I'm just going to, if you can just kind of pass it along. But because our topic for today is Holy Scripture in the lens of tradition, Maybe we will do the whole thing, but I don't want to get caught up in this too much. Many of you are familiar with this. Many of you have seen this before. So uh, we'll try to go through it somewhat quickly while being fair to it. This was, by the way, written by someone who does see eye to eye with me uh, considerably. I wrote it. so. But there are some places I do disagree with it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, that, yes, yes. I agree. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yeah. Okay. As orthodox with a small o, what does the word orthodox mean? Correct. Yes, correct teaching and correct worship. Dox is doxology, praise. So it, it means both faithful worship and faithful understanding of doctrine. So we're using a small o here, meaning not Eastern Orthodoxy, but Orthodox Anglicanism. So Anglicans who are holding to uh, the right doctrine of God. Like an orthodontist who makes your teeth correct. It's the same root word. Not root canal. Sorry, I'm good. Not enough size. I, I have to work on you. All right. As Orthodox Anglican Christians, we are evangelical. Now, this is a word that can be somewhat scary for people because they hear the word evangelical and they imagine a whole host of things. You know, people coming up to you, are you saved, brother? You know, do you know Jesus or little tracks? that are left, that say you're going to burn in hell for all eternity unless you come to our church. You know, we did try those for a while, but they didn't go over well. And uh, I'm just kidding. Um, and so it is a scary word for some people, but for many people also, evangelical uh, is incompatible with Catholic. And for Anglicans, that's not true. Okay, we are evangelical Catholics. But evangelical okay, means to be 
grounded in the Bible, to be biblical, to be grounded in Scripture, and to have a desire to make the Word of God known in the hearts of people. So, as Orthodox Anglican Christians, we are evangelical. So what do we mean when we say we are evangelical? It means that as Orthodox Anglican Christians, we believe the good news. What's another word for good news? Gospel. We believe the good news of Jesus Christ to be the gospel of life and salvation for the whole world. So not just for our North American culture or this particular context or society or for Western people, but that this is truly good news that is for all people of all time in all places, which is what the word Catholic means, by the way, to encompass all, whole, okay? So I would argue that a true evangelical is Catholic and a true Catholic is evangelical, but we'll get into that in a, in a few classes from now. So we believe the good news of Jesus Christ to be the gospel of life and salvation for the whole world and believe that all persons are called into a personal relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up, shall draw all men to myself. I will that all men be saved. Jesus desires the gospel to be brought to all people. What does he say? Go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Okay. So we believe the good news of Jesus Christ to be the gospel of life and salvation for the whole world and believe that all persons are called into a personal relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. As a mission-minded church, or in this sense, communion, we believe that we are commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit, who commissioned us? God in the person of Jesus. Who empowers us? God the Holy Ghost. So, I mean, talk about credentials. You have incredible credentials. You have been commissioned by God in the person of Jesus, and you have been empowered by God the Holy Ghost. To do what? To make Jesus Christ through our witness of the faith. Okay, so we are to witness. What does, uh, uh, the, what's the root word for witness? What does it mean in Greek? Martyr. Martyr. Okay, witness. We are to be martyrs. That is, we are to live sacrificial lives that proclaim the faith of Christ. Through our witness of the faith, Public testimony, which means we have an opportunity at the end of, of every Mass. We have an opportunity at the end of every Mass on Sunday here at Holy Trinity for people to stand up and to witness through testimony how God is at work in their life, in their heart, in their homes, in their families, in their church, in their ministries, etc. Because it helps encourage other people and there's power in public testimony. So through our witness of the faith, public testimony, our daily ministry, does that mean uh, the priests and the deacons of the church? No, it, mean, it, it means all of us. It means we are a body, the body of Christ. You are always ministering 
Jesus Christ, especially if people know that you're a Christian. You are always proclaiming Jesus. You're either proclaiming that he makes a difference in your life, or you're proclaiming that he makes no difference in your life. But you are always proclaiming Jesus, especially if people know that you are a Christian. So our daily ministry, church planting, and through word and sacrament, okay, which is another way of referring especially to the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Divine Liturgy. So through these things, we make Jesus Christ a living and present reality in the lives of those whom we daily encounter. Now, this whole idea of Jesus becoming a present reality, this is a word you're going to hear a lot about in this course. It's the word, Greek word anamnesis. Anamnesis. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Does someone want to try to spell it? A-N-A-M. What's that? N-E-S-I-S. N-E-S-I-S. Anamnesis. And what it means, in, in English it's often translated remembrance, but it really means to remember. When something of the past breaks into the present and becomes a reality in the present. If I take Legos and I build a tower, the tower is now a present reality for us. If I dismember the tower, it is no longer a present reality for us. It's something in the past. But if I remember the tower, it is now a present reality. That is much closer to what we mean when we say remembrance. It's anamnesis. It's when something of the past breaks into the present and becomes a reality in that moment. A living and present reality in the lives of those whom we daily encounter. That is, we are to make Jesus, through anamnesis, a reality in people's lives today. We're not telling them about someone who lived over 2,000 years ago. We're telling them about someone who is living and who, who desires to be a present reality in their lives today. When Deacon Susie and I were out on our prayer walk the other day, we weren't talking about the historic Jesus. We were talking about the living Christ when we shared him with people. Okay? When we said, Mas que todo uh, Jesus te ama. How did I do? Perfect. Ah, perfect. That's the, se that's the second perfecto I've gotten. Ah, gracias. Ah, uh, yes. Paulina, Paulina es muy inteligente. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll stop speaking in tongues now. That comes later when we get to charismatic here. Um, a living and present reality in the lives of those whom we daily encounter. So, yes, it's true. When the word of God is proclaimed, anamnesis happens. Okay, we, we not only hear about salvation history, we become partakers of salvation history through the proclamation of the story of God. When we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of, of me, in Greek the word is anamnesis, Jesus is becoming a present reality for us in that moment. When we partake of that 
consecrated bread and that consecrated wine, we are partaking literally in Jesus Christ who has become present for us. Jesus is also present through anamnesis in the body of Christ where two or three are gathered in his name. I am in the midst of them. That is, he is present in a special way through anamnesis. But also when we go out and make him uh, alive for people, we are living out anamnesis. Okay, and that's part of what it means to be evangelical. Um, I say, people say, well, you know, it's a shame. It used to be that the church would just open the doors on Sunday and ring the bell and people would come in out of guilt or duty or or because their parents made them and the church would be filled and, oh, the good old days. Now look, no one, no one comes to church and you ring the bell and someone calls the police that you're disturbing the peace and, and, uh, um, and, and so forth. And I, you know what I say to that? Thank God people aren't coming into the church just because you open the door and ring the bell. Because now the church will be forced to learn something which the apostolic church knew, and that is how to bring Jesus out into the world and make him a present reality through anamnesis in the lives of people. And then once they encounter the living God, they will come into the house of God to worship him. So this demise of the church, I think, is good for the church. I think it's good for the church. Because if, you know, I, we wouldn't be out walking the streets if every Sunday we opened that door and there was standing room only. Our faith, moral beliefs, worship, preaching, and teaching are grounded in God's holy word. So when we are deciding, what is it that I believe? What is it? What's my, my, my morals? What are my ethics? We don't go based on, well, what do I kind of feel? What do, what do I think? Okay? Um, and uh, rather, we say, what, does, what has God revealed? We open our hearts to the truth of his word and allow his word to fill us. Okay? It's not shaping our morals into our image and likeness, but allowing ourselves and our morals to be shaped uh, into the image and likeness of God, by God himself. Okay. So our faith, moral beliefs, worship, preaching, and teaching are grounded in God's holy word. As evangelical Christians, we proclaim Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the only means for salvation for humankind. Now, right from the get-go, not Geico, get-go, okay, I'm going to say, right away, we tend to worry a lot more about a job that has not been entrusted to us, and that is judgment, than we do about the job that has been entrusted to us, which is evangelism. We worry about, when we start talking about evangelism, we don't worry, first of all, most of the time, about how can we do it? What's the best way to make Jesus Christ a present reality? We want to know right away, excuse me, Father, what about the Buddhist who lives in Tibet who's never heard about Jesus Christ? What about the person on the island? What about my, uh, my ex-husband? <laughs> what about my, you know, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Judgment belongs to one person. Jesus. He is the only one 
who can be perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He is the only one who can see into the depths of men's hearts. So let's leave judgment to Christ. He's entrusted us with the sharing of the good news. That's our job. Who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is his job, not ours. Okay? Our job is to share the good news as though the whole world is perishing and to make him known. Okay? So what I say, you know, what happens to them? We must share the good news with them with them as if they're perishing. But we leave judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who, who judges. But our job is to evangelize. Okay, to evangelize. I remember thinking of my, my former dentist in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, Dr. Sherberg. Nicest Jewish man. Uh, I mean, just the nicest guy. I, I never could comprehend how he could be a dentist because he's the type of person who wouldn't want to inflict pain on anybody. And he was just such a gentle, kind soul and character. And I remember the day my mother called and said, Oh, did you hear Dr. Sherberg died kind of suddenly and young? And, and uh, you know, and, and, and I remember thinking, Oh, my goodness. I mean, this is the type of guy that if he was in hell would go up to the devil going, let me see your teeth. Oh, that's terrible, you know? And uh, so I'm thinking, Lord, what happened to Dr. Sherberg? You know what? That's the Lord's business. Who knows if he, someone was sent to him just before he died and he received Christ? Who knows if Christ himself appeared to him in the seconds before he died and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And Dr. Sherberg embraced him. You know, we leave that to, to Christ. But my job was to have shared Jesus through example. It doesn't always have to be, by the way, are you saved? That, really, it's not always the best approach. You know? Or taking out, as I say, take out a lighter and, you know, and tell someone, put your finger in there. Ow! You think that hurts. Imagine what it will be like for all eternity when your flesh is burning world without end. <laughs> now, come to the love of God. I mean, you know, so this isn't always the best approach. But uh, we, we share the good news in many ways. Uh, but what I would say is that the word of God and the early fathers are clear that we are to evangelize uh, um, because the world is perishing and Christ is life. But ultimately, judgment, we are told by Jesus also that judgment doesn't belong to us, that he, is, that he himself is the judge. And that's where we need to leave it. We have to take evangelism into our hands and leave judgment in his because that's how he said it's going to be. And as I often say to the bishop when I d disagree with him, I'll say, well, sir, you're the bishop. In this case, we'll have to say, uh, well, sir, you are the Lord and Savior of the universe. So we'll leave, we'll leave it with, with, with him. On the evangelical part, uh, any questions before we move on to Reformed and Protestant? Okay. So as Orthodox Anglican Christians, we are evangelical. We are also Reformed or Protestant. Now, unfortunately, the word Protestant for many people means not Catholic, okay? 
And that's why I tend not to use it. Because we are, as Anglicans, Catholics. Okay? Not Roman Catholics. Okay? But we are Catholics. In fact, when you read John Jewell, you'll see that he'll make the claim. He was, uh, wrote the Apology of the Church of England after the Reformation in England that we have more of a right to the, the, the term Catholic than the Church of Rome. Okay? Um, uh, but really... Protestant means to give positive testimony. So in that sense, when we get pro is a positive thing, testament to testify, to give positive witness, we are Protestant in the true definition of the word, which doesn't mean opposite from Catholic, but we give positive witness to the faith and order of the undivided church under Holy Scripture. Under Holy Scripture. So we are pro-Testament. Okay? We are pro-Testament. We are Protestants in that sense of the word. We are pro-Testament. We are giving positive testimony too. We are bearing witness in a positive way to the authority of God's word in and over the church. Catholic. Is everyone with me on that? And so we are also reformed in that we are reforming the church always to bring it anew under the authority of God's holy word. Is everyone with me? Okay. Amen, brother. We're with you. Okay. All right. So what do we mean? As Orthodox Anglican Christians, yes, we're evangelical, but we are also Reformed or Protestant in the best sense of the word, in that we believe in the primacy and authority of the Holy Bible over and within the church. What do we mean by primacy? Nothing comes before it. Right, nothing comes before it. It's first. It's prime. It's number one. If you're doing Anglican theology, the first place you should go is to the Word of God, to the Holy Scriptures, okay? Um, And uh, so that's what it means by primacy. There are many things that have authority within the church, but Scripture holds a unique place within the authority of the church because it holds the place of primacy, It's kind of like Christine in my marriage. No, kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. All right. So we believe in the primacy and authority. Where does the Bible get its authority? From God himself. The scriptures tell us that the word of God is literally God-breathed. God-breathed. So we believe in the primacy and authority of the Holy Bible over and within the church emphasizing God's word in our worship, preaching, and teaching. You know, um, I can't tell you how many people over the years, oh, so what, what are you with, Reverend? And I'll say, oh, I'm with the Anglican church. Oh, I go to a Bible church. And I say, oh, is it Anglican? And No, I said I go to a Bible church. Well, what's amazing is, number one, I've gone to a number of Bible churches, and while they may preach from the Bible, there's no Bible readings in the Bible church. 
No one actually proclaims, as the scriptures tell us to do, by the way, no one actually proclaims the word of God in reading from the word of God. But we actually have an Old Testament reading. We then have readings from the Psalms. We then have a New Testament reading. We then have a gospel reading. And of course, all of our worship is grounded in the Holy Scripture. Okay, so it is very biblical. Okay, our worship is biblical. Our preaching is to be biblical. I don't teach what the Pope says or what Father Michael says or what General Convention says or what someone in the church who's giving a lot of money says. What did you want me to say? <laughs> um, uh, right? I preach what the Word of God says. Okay, My preaching has to be in the Word of God. We are the Bible Catholic Church. Okay, Our preaching has got to be... Same thing with teaching. If I'm teaching something that's necessary for salvation, it has to be grounded in the Bible. And when it's not, I have to make that clear. Like, I kind of like that idea uh, that many Eastern Orthodox Christians hold, that pious belief that, that the forerunner comes and proclaims the, 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 the coming of Christ for them at the moment of their death, and, and, you know, will they repent and receive him? I like that idea, but I made it clear that it wasn't biblical, that it was not a must-believe, that it was only a pious belief, Okay? So I can teach other things, but I can only teach as necessary for salvation what is biblical. Okay, uh, This is one of the big differences between Anglicans as a fellowship of the greater Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church. All Everything that is a must-believe for us has to be biblical. Okay, Whereas we'll see... December 10th, uh, from the Roman Catholic Catechism, that tradition, the teaching magisterium of the church, can have an equal authority and weight with the Holy Scripture. So they can require something of the faithful to believe that is not biblical. Okay, we'll get into examples and that kind of thing. So we are Catholics, but our faith is the biblical Catholic faith. It's Catholic because it's been received by the whole church, East and West, right? And by the faithful in every age of the church. But it's the biblical Catholic faith. We only require that which is biblical. Um, that doesn't mean we don't exercise some things um, that are part of the practice of the church that it's not contrary to the scripture, it's not ill, it's not wrong, okay? Um, but it's not necessarily uh, biblical, right? Um, for, for example, um, you know, if I was to say, well, uh, I think it's a good thing to wear a green chasuble in this time of the church's year. Why? Because it proclaims something about the gospel. It proclaims something about Christ. Okay, uh, and we'll get into all of that in another class too. But if someone said to me, 
Well, do you have to wear a chasuble for it to be a valid Eucharist? The answer is clearly no, okay, because it's not biblical. It may not be a very colorful Eucharist, right? Yeah, you know, it might be black and white, but, you know, okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, emphasizing God's word in our worship, preaching, and teaching. We humbly submit ourselves to the transforming power of the Holy Scriptures, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later, the transforming power of the Holy Scriptures, as divinely inspired, containing all things necessary to salvation. So that's what I was just saying. We believe that if it's necessary for you to believe for the sake of your soul, it's going to be biblical. If it's a must-believe, versus a should-believe or a could-believe, right? If it's a must-believe, it's going to be biblical, okay? It's going to be in the Bible. It keeps us from shooting off in our own direction, right? And saying, well, we require this, you know. If I started teaching something absurd... You know, you say, well, look, this was never the practice of the church. This was never the teaching of the church. And it's not biblical, then, you know, you shouldn't be following it. Okay. Um, Containing all things necessary to salvation and believe it is not lawful for the church to proclaim anything that is contrary to God's word written, nor is it lawful for any one part of the church to alter the evangelical or biblical faith or Catholic order of the whole church unilaterally. Furthermore, we proclaim that salvation is a free gift of God given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, can I earn my salvation? No. Then why does the Bible say there has to be good works? Because they are the necessary fruits of a true faith, a lively faith in Christ, okay? I can say about my wife, Christine, oh yeah, Christine, I, I, I love you, but if there are no fruits, it's only what? Words, okay? So, uh, so works are the fruits of a saving faith in Jesus Christ, but we are saved by grace, that is by what God has done, not what we have done or have not done, but rather what he has done. For those who are listening to the recording, I'm pointing now to the crucifix. It's not what we have done, but what he has done. We are saved by grace. That grace is a gift from God given to us unmerited. Unmerited. Okay? Um, uh, But by faith, that is, we place our trust in that. And then works are the fruits of that faith. But God is infinitely beyond us as fallen creatures. So we can do good works from now till the end of time. And we are no closer to attaining to God than when we first began. So since we could never go to God, God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Bob? Yes, uh, Catholic order of the whole church. Yes. Catholic order of the whole church would mean um, uh, the three orders 
uh, for example, this would be one example, the three orders of ordained ministry that came out of Holy Scripture and have been with us since the apostolic times and New Testament times, that of bishop, priest, and deacon. We would say that, look, since they are biblical, and since this is the order of ministry that evolved in the church out of the Holy Scripture, and there are the three ordained orders of the church received by the whole church east and west, it's not for us to get, get rid of them, you know, uh, on our own authority. We, we, we don't have that authority to change them. Would it also have to do with the, uh, the running of the church, not just the orders of church, but you know, whether parishioners to, decide on... Uh, if there's something that's biblical, I mean, for, for example, you know, there is a place where it talks about the uh, the authorities in the church ha- having the ability to place people under spiritual disciplines, you know. So that can be can be done. But as far as like, well, there will be a convention, there'll be a house of laity in the house. That's not in there, you, you know. So we're free to 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 you know, as long as what we're doing is not contrary to scripture. But we are not free to do away with the episcopacy or the, pre, uh, the priesthood, the presbyterate. I remember, in fact, um, and we'll get to this too in this course, um, at the time of this new reformation of the coming together of the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, there was a, a priest and a couple of other supporters who wanted to do away with the vocational diaconate, that is the permanent diaconate. And I said, this is an easy one. You have no authority to do away with the diaconate because it is both biblical and also received by the whole church, east and west. Therefore, it is Catholic. Therefore, you have no authority to do away with the ordained diaconate. And as an Anglican, we don't have that authority because it's both biblical and Catholic. So, Joan? Mm-hmm. Now, they're not deacons. No, Don, Don's a lay Eucharistic minister here. Bob is a lay Eucharistic minister here. Yeah. And that, that does get into something that's a little bit, I don't want to go off on, on now, but how far can that go? Hello, Father Andrew. <laughs> you are on tape, by the way. Did you drink uh, the coffee? I did. I'm sorry. Um, but at some point we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because there are some who would say, and I'm one of them, that in our, uh, our enthusiasm to uh, increase, and this was good, but in our enthusiasm to increase the role in the ministry of the laity as part of the body of Christ that we usurped the, the vocational diaconate basically, by doing that. And I'm one of those believers. That we went so far in our enthusiasm that we actually usurped the diaconate. And I believe there's some out there that uh, are actually called to be deacons, but because the church has licensed them to do everything that a deacon can do, they'll never fulfill that calling. Because for them, it's become simply a matter of function and licensing rather than calling in vocation. 
So I think there's a danger there. So Dawn Richards, you were talking about, yeah. is, a, is a lay Eucharistic minister. So we have people in our church who are not deacons, yes. who can give communion. Uh, yes, he, he's not a deacon, and, and he does. Now, it used to be, uh, well, this is getting into, a, I, I'm going to stop there. It's much more complex than that. Okay. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, um, if I say I don't encourage it, I'm going to kind of hang myself without giving a half-hour explanation. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to let it hang right there. There it is. Okay, and uh, we, will, we will get to that. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not going to cover the others because of time. So bring this sheet back and we'll, we'll look at the others at another time. But this is what we mean by evangelical and reformed. And as Orthodox Anglican Christians, we are evangelical and reformed. And for the most part, why is this important today? Because we're teaching on the authority and role of Scripture within Anglicanism. And so what you have to understand is that we are biblical Christians. Our faith, our preaching, our teaching, our morals, uh, everything is grounded in God's Word written. Okay? And I'll give a few more examples of that. Joan? Reformed also implies that there was something that was formed that needed to be reformed, that wasn't yeah. formed properly, that, that throws back, of course, mm-hmm. to the Reformation, mm-hmm. when, yeah. when there were practices that were not appropriate. Yes, there were practices that developed in the medieval church that were neither biblical nor Catholic, because they were never received by the whole church east and west, going back to the time of Christ and the apostles, who by definition are not Catholic, and nor were they biblical. And so the church was in need of reformation. And the principle of the English Reformation, and we'll get to this again, I'll, I'll say it once or twice, so if you want to write it down, but this is the principle of the English Reformation. To return the Catholic church in the realm of England to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England, parentheses, and subsequently those in communion with her, parentheses. So to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England, parentheses, and subsequently those in communion with her, parentheses, to the faith and order of the patristic church, that is the early church, the church of the fathers, pater, patristic, okay? To return to the faith and order of the patristic church, or if you want, you can just say the early church or the undivided church, under the primacy and authority of the Holy Scriptures as God's word. So the principle of the English Reformation, which is, related to but distinct from the Continental Reformation or the Protestant Reformation, and we'll get to that too. They're related but distinct. The principle of the English Reformation was to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England, parentheses, and subsequently those in communion with her, parentheses, to the faith and order of the early church, 
or you might want to use the word undivided church, or you might want to use the word patristic church, or you might want to use the uh, early undivided patristic church. (laughs) Faith and order of the patristic church under the authority and primacy of God's word written. That's the principle of the English Reformation. And if, if low church evangelicals and high church Anglicans uh, really understood the principle of the English Reformation, there would be very little, there'd be less distinction between these uh, sad, uh, I, I say that it's sad that they've developed as parties within the greater church. Because uh, the principle of the English Reformation is both evangelical and Catholic. Okay? Um, And so that's uh, very important. Here's a couple of other examples. In the preface to the ordinal, now the ordinal are the ordination rites. So following the English Reformation, they were putting together the, the rites for ordination. Okay, the rites for ordination. And there was a preface to the ordinal, so to the rites of ordination. Is everyone with me? Okay. And it says, It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors. So what, what do you get out of that, first of all? What's first? Right. So it should be clear to you, is what they're saying. should be clear to you. If you first read Holy Scripture, and secondly, the ancient authors, that is the ancient fathers and mothers of the church, okay, the decrees of the ancient ecumenical councils, the liturgies of St. Basil, St. James, St. John Chrysostom, etc. It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors, it would also be evident to women if they wanted to read them too, by the way. Just, you know, yeah. <laughs> it is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles' time... So I mean, this, is, this statement is so Anglican because they're about to make a statement, right? And they're saying, first Scripture, secondly the patristic writings... And then the appeal to ancient times. They say that it's been clear that since apostolic times, so see the appeal to the early church? So Anglican. This is how you're going to do your papers, for those of you doing papers. That from the apostles' time, there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, with a big C, meaning the whole church, the Catholic church. Bishops, priests, and deacons. And it goes on to say, it is our intent to preserve these orders of ministry. So Anglicans do not claim a ministry of their own. Technically, there's no such thing as an Anglican priest. You're a Catholic priest who ministers within Anglicanism. Catholic priests that minister within the Roman Church. There's Catholic priests that minister within the Eastern Orthodox Church. But we have never claimed our own ministry. We have claimed 
the order of the undivided church. And it's very clear. But we're going to get into this. Uh, I'm going to hand this out to you in another class when we're actually going to be looking at the preface to the ordinal. But I wanted to use it as an example of how Anglicanism is done in classic post-Reformation Anglicanism. First scripture, secondly the fathers, and then the whole thing is an appeal to practice and order as it's unfolded since the time of the apostles. This is from the actual ordinal itself, the ordination rite. The bishop is speaking to the ordinan, that is to the, uh, the uh, man to be ordained, a priest. And he says, Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And what's the question asking? Well, although we are a fellowship of the Catholic Church, are you a Bible Catholic or a Roman Catholic? That's what the question is really asking here. Are you biblical in your Catholicism? So that's what the question is. Are you persuaded, let's say Bob, because he's hoping, let's say... So let's just try to imagine now. It's 2032 and Bob's being... And, and, and Bishop Harvey says, <laughs> when he hears this, I'm dead meat. Okay. The bishop says to Bob, are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? So not that it contains necessarily all doctrine. We can teach things and so forth. But that which is a must-believe, that which is necessary for salvation, do you agree that it's found in the Bible? Okay. And then the question goes on to say, and are you determined out of the said scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge and to teach nothing as required necessary to eternal salvation? So to teach nothing as required for eternal salvation but that which shall be persuade, that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by the scripture. In other words, as a priest, Bob, a Catholic priest, because we've maintained those orders, are you going do you believe that all necessary belief is biblical? And will you only teach as necessary belief that which is by a biblical? And the answer is. I am so persuaded and have so determined by God's grace. In other words, I'm a Bible Catholic. Since the time of the English Reformation, every bishop, every priest, and every deacon who has been ordained within Catholic orders to minister within this fellowship of Christ's Holy Catholic Church, Anglicanism, has taken this vow. Now, whether or not they kept it is, <laughs> we're, we're here because some haven't, but have taken this vow. Okay? And so the, we are evangelical. This is at the root of who we are. Okay? I think it was you, Emily. I just want to ask are we also then called fundamentalist, or is that different, or are we going to study that later? 
Well, well, we probably won't. It depends how it's being used. Unfortunately, with words today, words change so much. For for example, a good example I always use is that you know if I said um, if someone says, well, as an Anglican, we don't worship Mary, right? And I'll say, oh yes, yes, we worship Mary. They'd probably flip out, right? Well, the word worship actually used to mean revere, honor, respect. In the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, in the uh, service for holy matrimony, a husband would, would say something to the extent of, with all that I am and all that I have with my body, I thee worship. He would say that to his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that... Yeah, that he go, you know, goes home, builds her a throne, and starts doing that. You, you know. Um, now, Dan told me that you told him that's what it meant. Yeah, it does that. <laughs> now, yeah. <laughs> okay, but it's because the word meant to show honor and respect and to revere. But now, an adoration was for God. So sometimes we read the ancient fathers, and depending on the English translation, it will say. Uh, you know, worship Mary and the saints, and people go, oh my goodness, because they're applying the use of the word today to back then, okay? It used to be that we adored God and we worshipped saints and husbands worshipped their wives. Now we worship God and we adore puppies, <laughs> you, you know? What do you think about little puppy? Oh, it's adorable. <laughs> really? Your dog's the almighty God? Well, dog... D-O-G-G-O-D. I guess there's something there to it, but, but do you see what I mean? So words have, have, have changed, and that, that causes the, 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 the problem there. Does someone else have their hand up? Okay. All right. Um, this now is from one of the 39 articles of religion. They are one of the Anglican formularies. See, we're weaving a tapestry. You say, ah, he referred to the formularies before. I didn't know what he was saying. Now I know what one of them are, the 39 articles. The only problem is I don't know what the 39 articles are, <laughs> but we'll get to that. But you know so far that they're one of the formularies. By the way, the ordinal, including the preface, is one of the other Anglican formularies. And then the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is the other Anglican formulary. Those are the three main Anglican formularies. Okay, and then there's some subsequent stuff, but we'll get into that later. The, uh, the 39 Articles of Religion, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the, um, the Ordinal, which is the ordination rite. So if you want to know what we believe, you would look at, at, these, at these things and it would give you insight. Okay. Now they are subject, of course, to Scripture, because Scripture is prime, and then to the early tradition of the church, but Anglicans would argue that they, they rightfully articulate the faith of Scripture and that. And, and I think that's true for the most part, but we'll get into all that. Okay, so this is from the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, I think the ones we use are the edition that comes from 1563, I believe. Does anyone know? 15, oh. No, not the ones we have in the pews. The final edition of the articles that we reference uh, is the ones from 1563, I think. 
Bob, just say yes, we're on tape. Oh, sure, yeah, fine. Yes, I thought so. Thank you, Bob, for agreeing with that. Very good. Well done. Okay, yes, well done, Bob. I'm a man under authority. <laughs> so this is from the, the 39 articles. It's Article 6, and it says, 6 out of how many? See, you guys are the bright. You, you guys are so bright. Shining stars. Uh, shining stars. It says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So yes, we hold the Catholic faith, but when it comes to what is necessary for salvation, we hold to that which is biblical. And we'll get into either this session or the next one as to why. Why is it such the standard of what is true? Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Now, I'm going to give these at another class as a handout to you. But if you want to look it up, it's, it's Article 6. Just Google the 39 Articles of Religion and look at number 6. Okay? Uh, but it's number 6. And it's of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never in any doubt in the church, and then it goes on and it gets into the whole Apocrypha thing, and we'll deal with that another time. So I'm going to give you an example. So what we're saying here is, while we hold, we Anglicans, just like we've never claimed orders of ministry of our own, we've maintained the Catholic orders, bishop, priest, and deacons, nor have we ever claimed a faith of our own. We hold to the Catholic faith, that faith which was believed by the whole church, east and west, in the ancient uh, church, under the authority of Scripture. Okay? So it's the biblical Catholic faith. Um, but, so I'll give you an example. What's an example of something that the Roman Catholic Church says you must believe as a, 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 as a Roman Catholic? You must believe it, even though it's uh, not uh, biblical or received by the whole church, east and west. Well, well there, there's one. I'm going to give a simpler one. The, all right. The Roman dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary is that Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother Anne, kept free, not set free. If it said set free, it would actually be a little less of a problem. Still a problem, but less so. Kept free of original sin. Okay. Problem number one is that the early church did not know that doctrine because it was not biblical. Number two, it was never accepted by East and West. Okay? So by definition, it's not what? Catholic. So it's not biblical and it's not Catholic. To this day, the Eastern Orthodox Church rejects the idea 
that Mary was kept free from original sin because for them, original sin is simply the consequence that we are born into a fallen humanity. So if Mary isn't born into a fallen humanity and Jesus derives the fullness of his humanity from Mary, then he never took on uh, our, our condition, all kinds of problems, okay? But it's not, the, my point is that A, it's not uh, biblical, B, it's not Catholic. C, it wasn't defined as an absolute must-believe in the Roman church until 1850, 1850, by Pope Leo XIII. He was a lion, that guy. (laughs) Leo, some of you? Okay, anyway. uh, Sandra gave me a pity smile. It was nice. <laughs> it was kind of that pastoral smile. <laughs> so by Pope Leo the uh, Thirteenth in 1850, and it said that Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother Anne, kept free from original sin. Okay, in light of the special relationship she would have. Not biblical. Not Catholic never accepted by East uh, or West. So as an Anglican priest, I well, there's no such thing as an Anglican priest, right? I said that earlier. But as a Catholic priest who serves in this fellowship, the Anglican fellowship, I might say, I don't, by the way, but I might say, well, if you understand it kind of as Thomas Aquinas understood it, um, you know, in that really she was set free, she received uniquely in the moment of her conception, what we would all receive through our baptism. And, you know, and I kind of personally believe it, that that would be okay, but I can never teach it or preach it and say that you have to believe it. By the way, I don't believe it at all. I don't think even when you, you got to do that many gymnastics, you're just going to hurt your back. Okay. (laughs) But let's say that I did believe it personally, right? As a priest serving in Anglicanism who's taken that vow, I could never teach it or preach it and say, you must believe it as a matter of salvation. Is everyone with me? Okay, because it's not biblical nor Catholic. Okay, here's another one. In the very early church, almost all Christians believed that Mary, at some point after her death, that Jesus came and took her body to heaven. Okay. Evidence for it. Number one, although it's not biblical, it's not contrary to Scripture either. Enoch in the Old Testament in Genesis was taken body and soul. Elijah, the prophet, was taken. In fact, he made a big production about it. There was this big chariot of fire and all this stuff, right? And it's implied, at least implied, that Moses' body was taken, Jude verse 9. So, okay, it's not clearly biblical, but it's not contrary to Scripture. Um, another thing is that relics, where the, the uh, apostles were buried and the early martyrs like Polycarp, where they were buried. This was very important to Christians because they had a high doctrine of the body, okay? There were no relics of Mary, okay? Anyone tries to sell you a relic of Mary and you say, oh, Father Michael would love this. He'd give his right arm for this. 
no pun intended, um, don't waste your money, although I'd probably give you the same smile that Sandra gave me a couple of minutes ago. I'd say, oh, that's so sweet. What an idiot. <laughs> so, right, so um, it was a commonly held belief in the early church, east and west, they believed it as a matter of piety, not faith. Do you see the difference? As a matter of piety, not faith, because it wasn't clearly biblical. All Eastern Orthodox Christians believe it, but they've never decreed it as a dogma of the church because it's not biblical. Rome decreed it as a must-believe and as a dogma equal to the Trinity, the Atonement of Christ, in 1950. It's an infallible statement by the Pope. In 1954. 1954. That's when the Pope decreed it as an infallible statement that you must believe it. That she was taken body and soul into heaven. Whether or not she died and then her body was taken or whether she was taken is, is alluded to but isn't clear in the statement. Okay. Yeah, that's the other one. This is now Mary's assumption, oh, okay. Dormition, as it's known in the early church. Okay. okay. It was commonly believed by Christians East and West in the early church. There are no relics of Mary's bones. Um, it's not contrary to Scripture. What's your guess? Do you think as a matter of personal piety, does Michael McKinnon believe as a matter of personal piety that Mary's body was taken uh, to heaven by our Lord after her death? Yes. yes. Yes, I do. I do believe it. I cannot teach it to you, however, and say you must believe it as a matter of faith because it's not clearly biblical. So if I'm driving down the road and, God forbid, Praveen's in a horrible accident. In fact, on my way here, this huge branch, I had stopped at a stop sign. This woman was going to take the turn, and this huge branch fell off a tree right onto her windshield. She was fine, though, and I got, oh, are you okay? And she was. She, she was fine. And I said, oh, my goodness, God bless you. Here's a car and get back. And uh, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, yeah, well, this morning, the bishop and I and Deacon Bruce and Sue had breakfast at, uh, uh, at um, thanks, and uh, a, a, a man, a young man sitting on the stool, uh, not the bar bar, but you know, like the Jake's breakfast bar, whatever you call it, turned to us and he showed me his tattoo and he said, is this a sin? And we got into it and I gave him my card and, and his name is Todd and if you want to pray for him, please do that. He comes to the Lord. Anyway, um, I, 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 yes, but I, I cannot teach that as a must-believe. So if this same branch fell on Praveen and let's say, God forbid, mortally wounded him and I got out of the car and Praveen says to me, Father Michael, yes, Praveen. My tithe is in my left pocket. Oh, good, good. <laughs> Thanks, Praveen. I'm late for class. See you later. No. And he says here's to me, yeah, here's a card. I already have one of those. Actually, I just pass on the other side of the road. Wait for a Samaritan to come. But he says to me, Father Michael, I'm not sure that Mary was taking body and soul into heaven. I'm going to say, 
Praveen, don't worry about it. Take it up with her when you get there. Tell her I said hello, by the way. <laughs> okay? If he says to me, Father Michael, I've got to confess, uh, I'm not sure Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'd say, ooh, we got some lovely parting gifts for you, Praveen. <laughs> I'd say, Praveen, you have about 20 seconds to change your mind on this, okay? Before I send him to the one who will judge him. I'm not going to judge him, but it ain't looking good for him, Bob. It ain't looking good for him. Do you see the difference? So although I personally believe that Mary's body was taken, I, cannot, I can teach that to you in the way I just did. The, the whole early church believed it. It's not contrary to Scripture. There are no relics, da, 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 da. I can even try to make the argument from Scripture a little bit, but I cannot require it for you to believe as necessary for salvation. First of all, because it's not necessary for salvation. Well, yes. Uh, we've been talking about biblical and Catholic. Yes. Why? Why the two distinctions? I mean, you cannot have something that's Catholic that's not biblical, and if it's not biblical, I, I and 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 this is my point. Sadly, when people say Catholic, they mean the Roman Catholic, and and that's kind of a, a pet peeve with me because for me. When people say, well, is the Pope Catholic? I'll say, well, sit down. You've asked a complicated question because there are dogmas that the Pope believes that are, by definition, not Catholic. Um, and, but the other thing that makes me sad in our own movement is that you have Anglicans who identify themselves as evangelicals and you have Anglicans that identify themselves as Catholics. And to me, there are two sides of one coin. You, you know, if you have a, a quarter that only has the tail side, it's not worth anything. If you have a quarter that only has the head side, it's not worth anything. And to, in arguing over which side is the correct side, it's like arguing over which side of a quarter is worth 25 cents. And this is the argument I'm trying to make, is that it's very popular in our Orthodox Anglican movement to talk about the three streams the evangelical, the spirit-filled, and the Catholic. And I, and I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, you know, let's appreciate one another. But when I read the early church, they weren't streams or parties or different denominations. They were just spirit-filled evangelical Catholics. That's who they are. And, and were. And so for me, I think for our movement truly to be fully who we want, uh, who we are, we need to actually not only talk about appreciating one another, we need to get beyond the streams into one flowing river. Because until then, you, you have kind of this, oh, well, I'm an evangelical. Oh, well, I'm, I'm a Catholic. Oh, well, I'm, I'm charismatic. And they say, you know, what are you? And I say, yep. <laughs> I've, I've understood that in terms of uh, understanding Scripture, there are different interpretations. We're going to get into that in just a minute. And that's why we need tradition. And that's, that, that's right. That's why we need yeah. all three. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. Joan? What about the ordination of nuns? The nuns aren't ordained. They're not. No. Nuns aren't, aren't ordained, they're professed. They're professed. They're considered religious, so there's some distinction from... 
Now, they're ordained in a small o in the sense that they are set apart. They are set apart in, in, that, in that sense. But they are, there's only three. The, you're, if you're ordained, you're a bishop, you're a priest, or you're a deacon. Everything else is an honorary title. So, pope, he's a bishop. Okay, cardinal. They're bishops. Well, actually, historically, there were some non... Yeah, they, yeah. Um, archbishop are bishops. You, you know, um, archdeacons. Well, they're very special. <laughs> they're, they hold a very special... No. They, that's, they're, in our diocese, they're priests. You, you know, all this... Other, dean, canon. I don't know what else. Head smurf, Whatever. Okay, all of these things are ecclesiastical titles, okay. honorary titles that may or may not bestow some authority with them. Um, Monsignor is another one for in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that type of thing. But, there, but if you're ordained, you're a bishop, priest, or a deacon. However, there are the religious, which are monks and nuns, and there's actually a distinction right. between nuns and sisters, actually, but no one uses that distinction anymore. But they are set apart, and they are professed. Am I using right terminology? Perf Thank you. Yeah, okay, so they're professed, and so they are set apart in that sense. Um, I want to give, um, and again, you'll get this in, in, in the future, and then we'll get into uh, a couple of things here. This is by Lancelot Andrews, okay? Lancelot Andrews. He was one of the 17th century Anglican divines. <clears throat> so if you're doing your papers, you're going to look first at Scripture, secondly, at the early church fathers and mothers and the ancient creeds and councils and liturgies. But then thirdly, I said the Anglican formularies and the writings of the English reformers. He's from the group known as the uh, 17th century Caroline Divines or Anglican Divines. His name is Divine, uh, divine uh, uh, one of divinity. Like I studied divinity uh, to study the, the divine, and um, um, and uh, he 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 wrote this, and I think it's a wonderful statement, but it really shows the authority. Now he mentioned when it comes to councils, there were seven ecumenical councils in the early church that have truly are Catholic. They're received by the whole church East and West. But Anglicanism has always placed kind of a hierarchy of order on the first four and see the latter three as a working out of the uh, Christology. That's the understanding of the incarnation in the latter three is applying. So we kind of have a hard, So when he refers to four councils, don't get confused. We'll get into that. But this is a great way of remembering uh, Anglicanism and our position as a fellowship of the Catholic Church. And it's one, two, three, four, five. He says, one canon, one canon reduced to writing by God himself. Now the canon means the official list of the books of the Bible. So one canon reduced to writing by God himself. That is, this is God's word that he has put in, in, into a written form through human authors. One canon reduced to writing by God himself. Two testaments. Now, we understand, of course, the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, but we also 
can't really comprehend the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Okay? Um, but two Testaments, they are both authoritative. So, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, you know, God, you know, did, oh, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I forgot that it's now absolute, you know, obsolete. Okay. So, one canon reduced to writing by God himself, two Testaments, old and new. Three creeds that summarize the faith. What are the three creeds? Nicene Creed. Yeah, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Pauline is correct. The Nicene, which we call for short Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Creed of St. Athanasius, which we do once a year on Trinity Sunday. If you want to look at it this Sunday, uh, you know the new booklets we have? It's in the back the Creed of St. Athanasius, so you can look at it. One canon, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, and like I said, we'll talk about how the latter three are seen as a working out of the Christological um, statements of the first four. Five centuries, so that's really the formative years of Christianity, when the canon of Scripture and the creeds and the apostolic ministry, all solidified, okay? And the series of fathers in that period, so the early church fathers, determined the boundary of our faith. That's Lancelot Andrews. One canon reduced to writing by God himself, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, five centuries, that's the formative years, and the series of fathers in that period determined the boundary of our faith. But what's first when he makes his statement? Yeah, Scripture. Scripture. Primacy of Holy Scripture. Uh, well, I think what he's saying first is that it's God's Word and that we, were, we, we look at both the Old and New Testament, because that was a theological issue for, for people. In early Christianity, there were those who didn't want to include the Old Testament. Okay, yeah. When you say Caroline, what is... Carolingian. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it just means they were all big fans of... Uh, I, I can't think of his name, actually. Neil Diamond. They were all Neil Diamond fans. That's what it means. Yeah. All right. No. No. They were divine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bob, you're, you're right. There are some that you can tell for sure. Right here and now, they're going to hell when they die. Yeah. They're, that's it. Okay. This is Canon A5 of the Church of England, and you'll get this too, okay? Canon A5. So you don't, don't try to write this down. It takes too long. You'll get it. I'll send it to you. Canon A5. Canon are, canons are the laws of the church, the guiding laws of the church. The doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in, what do you think is first? The doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures 
and in such teachings of the ancient, what do you think is next? Fathers and councils of the church, as are agreeable to the said scriptures. So you see how they're placed under the authority of scripture? Because no father, even Gregory of Nyssa, is infallible. Although if there was going to be a father who was infallible? Okay. Okay, the doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures, see the primacy of Holy Scripture there, and in such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the Church. When they say the Church there, what are they referring to? The Catholic Church. Yeah. Could you say that again, in such teachings of the... Well, I'm going to send it to you. Don't, we don't have time to, to write it down. I'll send it to you by email. We just don't have the time. So the doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures and in such teaching of the ancient fathers and councils, like Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, of the Church as are agreeable to the said Scriptures, so they are subjected to the primacy of Scripture here. In particular, such doctrine is... Uh, such doctrine is to be found in, and what do you think they name now lastly? The Anglican formularies. The 39 articles of religion, the Book of Common Prayer, meaning the 1662, and the ordinal, the ordination rites. See how Anglican that is? By the way, if all Anglicans throughout the world debated anything they wanted to debate, but held to that, there wouldn't be any splits at all. Because we would know who we were as we debated things. Okay? All right. Um, so I'm now going to go into something very, very important, and I have this handout for you. And this is called the Vincentian Canon. The Vincentian Canon. Here's the, here's the question. Father Michael, we think you're a nice guy. We might even believe that you're, you're a good teacher. But you know what? Presbyterians teach one thing. Of course, they're predestined to do that. Ah. <laughs> Presbyterians teach one thing. Lutherans teach another. Episcopalians teach another. Roman Catholics teach another. How do we know, and now you're teaching us, so how do we know what you're teaching us is true versus what we would hear at a Presbyterian church or at a, at a Methodist church? Is everyone with me? I'm trying not to sneeze, sorry. I must be allergic to the Vincentian canon. I hope not because it's one of my favorite pieces here. So, um, Vincentian canon, it sounds fancy. Vincentian just means the writings of Vincent, St. Vincent. Okay? Canon means a rule or guiding principle or official list. So, canon means uh, rule or guiding principle or uh, official list. So, the Vincentian canon simply means the guiding principle of Vincent. Okay, now this is St. Vincent of Lorraine. Is that how you pronounce it, Lorraine? Okay. 
who died in 434. So he's writing in the very early 5th century, the early 400s. He dies almost exactly 400 years after the time of Christ, so he's living even earlier. And this is what he says. So this, this one piece of paper could not only preserve Anglicanism, if we held to it, but could preserve Christianity as one. Remember, we always want Jesus to answer our prayers. How about answering his prayer? His prayer in the garden was that we would be one. Okay? Um, And so, how can we, we do that? So, Vincent writes in his guiding principle, I have, therefore, continually given the greatest pains and diligence to inquiring from the greatest possible number of men outstanding in holiness in doctrine. So, now he's asking this question, how do we know what is true? He goes to a, uh, he's taking great pains to do this. He goes to a great number of people to do this. But what's the first quality he looks for? Intelligence? Holiness. Holiness. Every year when we look for people to be on the vestry, I say, I'd rather have someone who is holy than someone who knows good finances. But because there's no one holy in our church, we end up with the crowd we have. No, I'm kidding. Okay. So the first thing he's looking for is holiness. I have therefore continually given the greatest pains and diligence to inquiring from the greatest possible number of men outstanding in holiness and in doctrine, how I can secure a kind of fixed and, as it were, general and guiding principle, canon, for distinguishing the true Catholic faith from the degraded falsehoods of heresy. So how do I know what is true and what is heretical? It's a good question. How do we know what is true today? And the answer that I receive is always to this effect. So basically the answer I receive is the same, and this this summarizes it. That if I wish, or indeed if anyone wishes, thus if we wish, to detect the deceits of heretics that arise, and to avoid their snares, and to keep healthy and sound in a healthy faith, See, that's what we want. We want spiritual wholeness. We want to be spiritually healthy. It's not about me being right and you being wrong. It's about what God has revealed and and having a healthy relationship with Him through His revelation. Okay. So if anyone wishes to detect the deceits of heretics that arise and to avoid their snares and to keep healthy and sound in a healthy faith, we ought... With the Lord's help, there's that grace again, right? The Lord's help to fortify our faith in a twofold manner. Even though he wasn't an Anglican, guess what's going to be first? Scripture. The reason Anglicans play Scripture first is because Anglicans are patristic and the fathers play Scripture first. Okay? In a twofold manner. Firstly, 
That is, by the authority of God's law. Now, when he's using that here, he's, he, what he means here is God's word. He means the Bible when he says God's law. Then secondly, by the tradition of the Catholic Church. So the whole church, not the Roman Catholic Church. There was no such thing in this day and age. There was just the Catholic Church. Okay. Not General Convention, not the Southern Baptist Convention, not Father Michael in the Vestry, not the latest book in the Left Behind series, okay? But by Scripture and by the tradition of the whole church, the Catholic Church. So, uh, pretty cool. So he's basically saying, if you want to know what's true and what's not, Scripture and tradition. First, Scripture. Secondly, tradition. Here it may be, someone will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and is in itself absolutely sufficient, what need is there to join to it the interpretation of the church? Now, put it down. Don't read ahead. What he's saying is, look, someone's going to object now. I'm going to say, if you want to know what's true and what's really Catholic, you need to first look at Scripture and then look at tradition. But someone's going to bring up the question, why do you need tradition? The Bible's crystal clear. What's the only problem with that? <laughs> right. In some places, Scripture is very clear on a surface level. In some places, the indefectible, infallible, absolute truth of God is revealed in the Scripture within the depth of Holy Scripture. The example I often give is that if I take my girls to the beach of the ocean and Sarah and Rebecca, it's a nice, beautiful, sunny day and it's very calm. The, the Atlantic is very passive. Pacific? Anyway. The Atlantic is very uh, still. And they say, Daddy, is that the ocean? And I say, yes. Have I lied to them? No, I haven't lied to them. That's true. That is the ocean. But if they leave with what they can see from the beach on a very sunny, still day, if they leave, that perception of ocean is going to be very misleading, even though I shared with them the truth. The fact is, is that to really comprehend the ocean, its majesty, its power, um, it's life, one must really experience the ocean in its depths, right? Um, and not just what you can see from the shore, okay? So sometimes scripture is very clear, and it is, it's surface level, like standing on the beach. There it is. But sometimes it is found in its depth. Okay, in its depth. Um, and so the problem with the people that say, why do we need tradition? Scripture is crystal clear. The problem with it is that if it was crystal clear, there wouldn't be any denominations. Right? Because most denominations formed until recently, not because someone wanted to recreate the scriptures, that's a recent phenomenon, but because people wanted, they believed they were right, they were the right interpreter of the scriptures. 
They were trying to be faithful to the scripture. So someone might say, oh, well, it's crystal clear. Take the fact that there is one person of Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man, okay, apart from sin. Take that. We all believe that, right? Anyone here not believe that? Okay, praise God. Um, there's one person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Someone prove to me by scripture that Jesus Christ is God. Using scripture, prove to me that Jesus is God. Really? Where? Wait, hold on. Wait, hold on. Oh. All right, well, that's a question. Who do you think, who do you say that I am? Give me a passage that says, Jesus Christ is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. Very good people. John chapter 1. Right. Uh, okay, so you give me John chapter 1, and I'll say, why do you call me good? Only God is good. When the man comes up to him and says, good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Okay. Give me another one where Jesus, you were on to it. Jesus says, I am. Right? Which is the way that God identifies himself in the Old Testament. Right? And Jesus says, I am. Basically, the high priest says, who do you think you are? I am. And then he tears his clothes because it's blasphemy in his eyes, right? Ears, right? Um, uh, okay. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So if you gave me another one, I would just come back with, the Father is greater than I. Okay. So the fact is, is that all the examples I'm using, okay, the depth of them is explained by the mind of the early church in the writings of the early church fathers. For example, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is a reference to what? To Psalm 22, which is a prophecy of his crucifixion and his resurrection uh, to, to, to come. But also the fathers tell us that God himself in the person of Jesus is, is entering into the greatest depths of human despair, so that even when we are there, we will find Jesus, okay? Um, and so the fathers explain it. It's not denying that he is God. It means this and this. But if you were going to use scripture, right, I could have used scripture the, the other way, right? Do you, does everyone follow me? Okay. Uh, we all believe that there's one God, God is one in essence, being, and substance, right? And within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? And the persons are not to be confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the persons, right? They're, they're distinct. Nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of God. You don't want to believe in three gods. There's one God, right? Okay, so we all agree that there's one God who is one in being, substance, essence, who is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
The person's neither being confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the persons, nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the Godhead. We all agreed to that. Where does it say that in the Bible? 1 Corinthians. What's it say? Just what you say. <laughs> Good, Bob. I have a man under authority. <laughs> yeah. Where does it say that in the Bible? No, no, the doctrine of the Trinity. The fact is, is that from the, the very first words of the Old Testament to the very last words of the New Testament, the Trinity is being revealed and is fully revealed. But it takes the lens of holy tradition to, to draw, draw out of Holy Scripture an orthodox understanding of the Holy Trinity. Otherwise, I could give you other things that I could defend from, from uh, Scripture, too, okay, uh, based, based on that. So this is why tradition helps us to understand. Vincent doesn't know. He knows of some small heretical groups, but he doesn't know. He's, he's a thousand years or more before the, the Protestant Reformation and the English Reformation, and yet he's dealing with this problem, okay, so he says, here it may be, someone will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and is in itself abundantly sufficient, uh, sufficient, what need is there to join to it the interpretation of the church? The answer is that because of the very depth of Scripture, all men do not place one identical interpretation upon it. The statements of the same writer are explained by different men in different ways, so much so that it seems almost possible to extract from it as many opinions as there are men. I'll give you a, an example. Um, I was in a, a theological debate one time with a few other people, and they were saying, oh, well, baptism... Water baptism, as they called it. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It's purely symbolic. And I said, really, you don't believe that God's grace is conveyed through holy baptism? No, 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 no. It's just an outward uh, public witness of what's already taken place spiritually within the heart. But nothing happens within, within baptism. And... Uh, and so we started uh, talking about Scripture and so forth. So I would throw out Scripture, they would throw out, you know, and, and so forth. So it um, makes an interesting conversation, but without getting into it, ultimately, when I threw out John chapter 3 and said, unless one is born by water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, that has nothing to do with water baptism. And I said, what do you mean, it has nothing to do... No, 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 no. Unless one is born of water, refers to being born of your mother, that's the water of the womb, and then being born of the Spirit is the spiritual conversion when you profess Jesus Christ from your heart with your lips. And I, so as an Anglican, I'm going to argue, no, it doesn't mean that. They're going to argue, yes, it does. How would Vincent say, and how would a, an Orthodox Anglican say, you can answer the question. We look back to how the early Christians understood John chapter 3. 
we look back to the ancient liturgies of baptism. Was this passage associated with what they call water baptism? Is everyone with me? And that gives us insight into how the earliest Christians, the earliest Christians, interpreted John chapter 3, which, by the way, they were interpreting as referring to both baptism and a lively faith. <laughs> okay? Uh, both. Okay. Uh, this is true uh, for... Uh, uh, well, let's not get into other examples. Let's keep going on with Vincent. So, uh, the statements of the same writer are explained by different men in different ways, so much so that it seems almost possible to extract from it as many opinions as there are men. Novation expounds in one way, Sibelius in another, Donatus in another. What was the Donatist heresy? Those were the people that said that um, donuts at coffee hour were sacramental. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Arius, another way, so on and so on. So he's saying, look, these were all men that were interpreting the scriptures, okay, and led small groups of the church away from, uh, from the Holy Scripture, okay? So, for example, let's take Sibelius. How many people would think that this is a, a, a good way of explaining the Holy Trinity? There is one God in three persons, okay? So, for example, there's one Michael McKinnon, but some people know Michael McKinnon as a priest, right? Uh, some know that I'm also a father, some to Sarah and Rebecca. Some know I'm also a husband to Christine. So sometimes I'm in that role of, of husband and, and as father and uh, as priest. And yet in sometimes, in one sense, they're all the same because I'm always a priest and a father and a, and a husband. How many think that that is an orthodox understanding of the Holy Trinity? Yeah, whoever whispered "keep your hand down" was right because that. It, but unfortunately, most Christians today in North America would have raised their hand and said, "Yeah, that sounds about right." That's what was called in when I was in seminary as the Teddy Roosevelt theory of the Trinity. There was one Teddy Roosevelt, but some knew knew him as president, some knew him as Rough Rider, and some knew him as a family man. But there was one Teddy Roosevelt. That that's that's not an orthodox definition of the Holy Trinity because uh, there's only one Teddy Roosevelt. There are three distinct persons of the one God. Okay? Of course, you all have the Trinity down because for the last, what, nine months, I've done an introduction to the Trinity in great detail on the front page of... The Messenger. The messenger. You made me a happy man. Okay, so... All right. Um, so what he is saying, look, uh, Pelagius, uh, um, all of the, Nestorius, all of these were trying to interpret the scripture, but were interpreting them in a way that the church before them, going back to Christ and the apostles, had not interpreted them. And they led people away 
from that belief. Okay. Um, all right. So he says, therefore, and I always struggle I, uh, on, the, on this word, so I'm going to try to get it in my head first. Intricacies, yes. Therefore, because of the uh, <laughs> intricacies of error, which is so multiform, there is a great need for the laying down of a rule, canon, for the exposition of prophets and apostles. What's that another way of referring to what? No, pro- no. Old prophets and apostles. Old and New Testament. Oh, okay. Yeah. In accordance with the standard of the interpretation of the church Catholic. That is, the whole Catholic church. Okay. Now, in the Catholic Church itself, we take the greatest care to hold that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. So everywhere, if you can't accept this teaching, get out. (laughs) Sibelius, God bless you. The rest of it will will be on tape, Emily. Okay. Remember, Scripture... Tradition, formularies. Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Teddy Roosevelt. All right. She, she has to go to work. She's a, a, a nurse. And so, uh, anyway, she's been using that excuse for a long time. She's really nursing that one. Sorry. Okay. Everywhere, always, and by all. So everywhere, meaning not just what the Episcopal Church in the United States says or the Anglican Church of Canada says, not what the Southern, Convention, Southern Baptist Convention says or what that part of the church says in Gaul or what that part of the church says in Prussia or what that part of the church says in Rome or in Constantinople, but what the church believes everywhere, everywhere, Okay. Always, okay? So I, I have a, a, a friend uh, that I know who um, sadly, I believe, was led astray into some errors. And he, I, I won't get into what it is because his church is in New England and you might be able to put two and two together and figure out who, of whom I am speaking. So, um, but he said, uh, well, Michael, you know, I'm following this model. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And I said to him, so-and-so, this is not what has come down to us. This model that you're following is, is, is not the patristic model that was taken out of Holy Scripture. And, and he said, ah, but look, here, see, it was done here in Alexandria for a, a period of time. That's how they did it in the early church in Alexandria. And my answer to him was, but it did not endure. That practice was not received by the whole church as being right order. You're choosing a a particular moment in the development of something within the church and that which was received by the whole church as being faithful to Scripture, and you're locking into that moment and saying, aha, you can find almost anything that was done for a short period of time somewhere in the ancient church. 
polygamy, I, on and on and on. You can find almost, uh, uh, almost anything for a time. But it did not endure. I'll give you another example. What's that? Not donuts after the service. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that, that's right. Here's something that did not endure in the church. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, I believe, in emphasizing the authority of baptism and the efficacy of baptism, makes a reference to a practice that they are uh, uh, utilizing. He doesn't condemn the practice, actually. He just refers to it. We know from other early church historians and writers that this practice was done for a very short time in Corinth, was never received by the whole church, and never became considered legitimate. In fact, it was later condemned as illegitimate. Does anyone know what it is? Paul refers to their practice of... Baptizing on behalf of the dead. Exactly. Baptizing on behalf of the dead. Now, he doesn't come right out and condemn it, actually. But it was never received as a practice by the church and actually later was condemned. Yes? The Mormons do believe that. That's right. All right. Um, So, everywhere... Everywhere means not just what they're doing at Holy Trinity in Marlboro, although that carries a lot of weight, let me tell you. Always, meaning in every age of the church, going back to Christ and the apostles. So if I declare, uh, um, uh, let's say I become Archbishop of Canterbury, and I uh, declare that Paulina is divine, should you believe it? She doesn't even believe it. Right, right, see? And, and, that, and that's the point. This is something that does not have continuity with the church in every age. So I'll get, give you a, a subtle example. We don't have time to go into a thousand questions. We will cover this, I promise. But belief that Jesus Christ is present in a special way, in a unique way, in Holy Communion, okay? The actual real presence of Christ, that when we receive Holy Communion, that we are encountering Christ in a unique way. If I proclaim that, will I be able to trace that back all the way to Christ in the Apostles? Yes. If I argue either the more extreme Protestant position that he is not present, it's only symbolic, or if I argue the Roman Catholic position that it's a mystery how he's present, but we've explained the mystery, and you better believe how we explained it, and it's called transubstantiation, which is taking Aristotelian philosophy in Thomistic terms and taking the anti-hylomorphic theory and blah, blah, blah. I'll get into it someday. But saying, this is how you have to, this is how we explain the mystery and this is how you must believe it. Would they be able to argue that explanation to be Catholic, that is believed by the church East and West, and have continuity going all the way back to Christ and the apostles? No. 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 Neither side. 
You cannot argue that Christ is symbolic in the Eucharist, nor can you argue that transubstantiation is the only philosophical explanation that's acceptable, because the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't accept um, uh, transubstantiation, and Anglicans do not believe it as Rome defines it, and we'll get into why and all that. A friend of mine who's Roman Catholic jokes that there's three things you have to know about Holy Eucharist in, in our church. I said, what? He said, number one, it's an unexplainable mystery. It cannot be explained. Number two, we've explained it. And number three, you better believe it. Okay? So neither one. But you can trace that Christ Jesus is truly present in the Holy Eucharist in a special way all the way back. Okay? But you can't argue the symbolic or the other. Okay, so this is what uh, Vincent would be saying. So everywhere, always, and by all. That is not just what one part of the church says, but by all. He says, that is truly and properly Catholic, as is shown by the very force and meaning of the word. So for something to be truly Catholic, it has to meet this criteria. Otherwise, it's not Catholic. Okay, does that make sense? So that's why there are claims made by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches that are not by definition Catholic. Okay? All right. He says, so that is truly and properly Catholic, as is shown by the very force and meaning of the word, which comprehends everything almost universally. Because the word Catholic means universal or whole. We shall hold fast to this rule, canon, if we follow universality, antiquity, and consent. We shall follow universality if we acknowledge that one faith to be true, which the whole church throughout the world confesses. Okay? So Catholic here means whole. So not what Holy Trinity teaches or what the Pope teaches or what General Convention teaches or what the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention teaches, uh, but what the whole church teaches. Okay. But you can make the argument, we'll look at the world today though, Father Michael. There's lots of, you know, you said earlier, there's many Christians that don't believe baptism has any efficacy. Ah, well, Catholicity is not just tied to what the, the whole believes, but it has to be tied to antiquity, and then lastly, consent. He explains these. We shall follow universality if we acknowledge that one faith to be true, which the whole church throughout the world confesses, antiquity, if we in no wise depart from those interpretations which it is clear that our ancestors and fathers, it should be plural, proclaimed. So in other words, what I proclaim to you today must be in continuity with the church in every age going back to the time of Christ and the apostles, okay? I can't innovate. I can't make up something new and say, you must believe this. An angel came to me and said that, uh, you know, this is now to be received by the gospel as gospel, okay? You can't do that. It's not Catholic. Uh, consent, if in antiquity itself... We keep following the definitions and opinions of all, or certainly nearly all, bishops and doctors alike. 
So then he gets into all the questions that may come up. This is what I love. What then? You hear like the enemy saying this. You know, did he really say? What then will the Catholic Christian do if a small part of the church has cut itself off from the communion of the universal faith? Okay, so we're saying that to be Catholic, it has to be by everyone. Well, what happens if a small part breaks off then and starts their own? What do you do in that, in that instance? The answer is sure. He's a, he's a little waffly here, so try to understand what he says. He will prefer the healthiness of the whole body to the morbid and corrupt limb. Now, I, I, I'm just a little unclear what he means. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. What he's saying is, look, if, if someone you know, goes off and refuses to repent, okay, then you, you have to hold to what the majority of the body, the majority of the body believe, okay? But then that begs another question. But what if some novel contagion try to infect the whole church? So it's not just a little section, a little morbid limb that needs to be operated on, and not merely a tiny part of it. Then what do you do? Now, this has happened in the church. There was a teacher named Arius who was from Alexandria. He was a priest. He was from Alexandria. And he taught that, that Christ was of like substance with God the Father, that he was superior to all of God's creation, but inferior to God himself, that God the Father is God, and God the Son is God by extension or gift. And he is a creature of God, that is, he was created by God, and he is the instrument that God uses to bring about our salvation. Okay? So he's superior to us, but he's inferior to God. But so closely has God brought him into himself that it's really hard to distinguish between them. Okay? Uh, this teaching, so what he taught was a line that said, there was a time when Christ was not. In other words, it was probably even before time, but there was a time because he was created as God's instrument to bring about salvation. Now, uh, to, to this day, Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witnesses teach a form of Arianism. Okay, it's not identical, but it's a form of, of this. Okay, anyway, this contagion infected a small part of the church at first. So you were able to separate yourself from the corrupt limb and join yourself to the healthier and larger body. But eventually... This heresy spread to the point where the vast majority in the whole world had accepted this as the true belief. Okay? Um, by the way, it, the Nicene Creed was combating Arianism. Okay? So, what do you do? All right, Vincent. 
Yeah, we're going to hold to what's true because it's both biblical and it's tradition. Why do you need tradition? Because people inter- interpret the depth of Scripture sometimes differently. So tradition is like healthy lenses you put on to help you comprehend the depth of it more. Okay, we're with you so far. But you want to believe that which is Catholic, that's fine if no one breaks away from what the rest is holding. But what happens if a small group does? Well, he says you have to hold to the, the, the healthy part of the body. But what happens if it's no small contagion? What if the whole body becomes infected? Then what do you do, huh, Vincent? Well, Vincent has an answer, as you might suspect. He says, um, then he will take care to cleave to antiquity, which cannot be led astray by any deceit of novelty. Why can't antiquity be led astray by novelty? It's over <laughs> Right. St. Augustine of Hippo will never be convinced of any new heresy because he's dead. <laughs> okay, so if if the whole world follows Paulina, you're going to do what? <laughs> yes, you know where she's leading, right? What are you going to do? You're going to hold to what the church believed prior to this contagion, uh, going back to Christ and the apostles. Is everyone with me? Right. What we're saying is, look, as Anglicans, we want to return the Catholic Church to the faith and order of the patristic church under the authority and primacy of Scripture. So we're going to hold to what is truly Catholic, believed by the whole church, East and West, and what's biblical, because we're Bible Catholics. Well, but Father Michael, what happens when a small group breaks off from that? Well, we call them to repentance, but if they refuse to repent, then we have to choose the healthiness of the whole body over the morbid and corrupt limb. Ah, but what happens, Father Michael, if this contagion doesn't get contained to just the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church in Canada, but spreads throughout uh, all of the Anglican Communion or even all of Christianity? Then what do we do? We hold to the faith of the fathers under the authority of God's holy word. Which leads to a great quote by one of the um, Anglican divines. His name uh, uh, was, is in the kingdom, Thomas Ken, non-juror bishop. Uh, and he said, I'll get you this quote, don't worry about writing it down, he says, I, these were supposedly his last words. This is a guy with a lot of breath, breath for his last words. He says, I die in the faith of the holy Catholic Church professed by the whole church east, uh, before the sad divisions of East and West. More particularly, I die in the faith of Holy Scripture uh, um, as distinguished from Puritans and uh, Papalists, okay, uh, as she adheres to the scriptures and the doctrine of the cross, okay. Uh, it's a bit of a paraphrase. I used to have it like that, and I, I just must be crossing that age border now. So I'll get it for you. 
If you Google Thomas Ken and put I die in, it, the whole quote will pop up for you. Thomas Ken, K-E-N. Thomas Ken, no, Ken, Bishop, non-juror, Church of England. Look him up and just type in Thomas Ken, I die in, and the rest of the quote will pop up. But I die in the faith of the Holy Catholic Church professed by the whole church before the disunion of East and West. More particularly, I die in communion with the Church of England as it stands distinguished from all papal and Puritan innovation uh, and as she adheres to the doctrine of the cross. It's a wonderful quote, and that's what that's saying. That So you hold, even if you're the last person left, Let's say we all become Arians, Joan, and you're the last one left. And even I'm saying, don't believe what I taught you before. Don't follow the world. Don't follow me. Follow the faith of the fathers under the authority of God's word written. Because when you die, it will be looking good for you. When we die, it ain't looking so good. Although we'll leave judgment to God. Okay. But it ain't looking good. All right. All right, so that, you know, so what do you do if it, it, you, you cleave to antiquity? Because antiquity cannot be led astray. And you know what's so sad is the, the, the biggest problem in the church today is not, well, some question this, well, sexuality, and I, it's the fact that Christians no longer know how to do theology. If we were looking at this, we could debate anything. I'm really, in one sense, liberal in that I'm willing to talk about anything. But it has to be the body of Christ, and we have to look at it within God's revelation. Firstly, Scripture. Secondly, tradition. Okay? Um, and no part of the body can act unilaterally. Because in any covenanted relationship, and you'll hear me say this a lot, in any covenant relationship, whether you have a strong friendship with someone, or a covenant of marriage, man and wife, or if you go in on a cottage with two other people, right? In any covenant, including with God, in any covenanted relationship, if one or some of the parties begin to act unilaterally, what happens to the whole, the whole covenant? It breaks down. And that's what is in the church. I say we can debate anything as long as we debate it as Christians. Holy Scripture, Holy Tradition. But while we're debating it, no one part of the church can move ahead and say, well, you'll, you'll come around to my point of thinking someday, so I'm going to just start doing it and you'll catch up. Because when you do that, you break down the covenant. If Praveen and Bob and I buy a cottage together in Maine on a lake, and it has a beautiful field stone fireplace in it. And the three of us are owners. Is it true that I own a third of the cottage and Praveen owns a third and Bob owns a third legally? No. What's the truth? I own it 100%. He owns it 100%. And he owns it 100%. It's not like I own the kitchen and he owns the living room. And Right? We all own the cottage 100%. So let's say I'm up there with my family. It's my turn, right? And along comes a salesman, and he says, 
Oh, that's a beautiful old uh, fireplace, uh, Fieldstone fireplace you have. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we love it. All three of us owners love that Fieldstone fireplace. The only problem with it is uh, those old fireplaces actually don't give off uh, uh, heat efficiently. They actually suck more heat out than they give off. What you need is one of the new, efficient wood-burning stoves. And I will take out at no cost the fireplace and at cost put in the new wood-burning stove. In this particular example, he's probably right, by the way, as far as efficiency, right? Let's say I go ahead. Can I sign for that? Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could. I can sign for it because I'm an owner of the cottage. And let's say he takes it out. And I don't ask them, what will that do to the covenant? Uh, It's going to greatly wound it. What if I call them up and say, I'm thinking of having the Fieldstone fireplace taken out and put in, I mean, yeah, Fieldstone fireplace and put in an efficient wood-burning stove. And they say, it may be more efficient, but we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. And I hang up and I say, they'll come around to it. It's, It's for the best. They'll catch up, and so I, I do it. And the Fieldstone fireplace comes out, and in goes the efficient. What happens to that covenant? Oh, yeah, not only wounded, it's probably destroyed. This is what the church has been doing since 1054 with the addition of the Filioque Clause into the Creed. When one part of the church said, we on our authority are going to add something to that which belongs to the whole. And when you do that, you set a precedent, don't you? And if you make one change without universal consent, even if you're right, in that case they were wrong, but even if you're right, if you make one unilateral change, what are you likely to do eventually? Make a, make a second, make a third, make a fourth. Okay? And so uh, what Vincent would say is, look, The church can discern many things, but it must look at scripture and then subsequently tradition. But no one part of the church can act unilaterally on the other. This is where I am actually on the whole issue of the ordination of women as priests. What I would say is, look, um, as far as what do personally... I I don't know, but this is what I would say, that the church cannot just ask the question, it must deal with the question from Scripture and tradition, okay? And if we don't have a ministry of our own, we are not free to change the priesthood on our own, right? Okay, so what I would say is, look, although I'm unlikeliest, that it's God's intention. What I would say is that I'm open to the possibility, but if one part of the church acts unilaterally, the more the church acts unilaterally, the less likely what will ever happen. The church will have be one. The more we act unilaterally in covenant, the more the covenant is separated and the wound becomes formalized, solidified. Okay? Well, then you might say, well, wait a minute, Father Michael. Why are you in favor of the ordination of women as deacons? It's because Susie gave me a lot of money under the table. No. 
Why do you think? Because when I did studies and looked at Scripture, it seemed evident that, there, that, uh, that Phoebe was a deacon. And then also, when you look at the ancient liturgies of the church and the writings of the fathers, particularly the Eastern fathers, it seems evident, although function was slightly different, that they, the, the rite for ordination was the same, it was identical to those of men. So for me, scripture, tradition, ding, <laughs> okay? But the other, I would say, look, even though I tend, I've tried to find for loopholes, can't, I tend to be an unlikeliest, I am open to the discussion, but it has to be done from scripture and tradition, and we cannot move ahead. Because when we do, we as Anglicans have said the priesthood is shared 100% by us, the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. They're not different types of priests than we are. Remember that from the beginning? We said we, we don't claim a ministry of our own. So if it doesn't belong just to us, we are not free to change it unilaterally either. Um, but that can be used in, in many things, in many things. Okay. So then... He says, and we're going to take a break soon just to take a stretch because I see some of you uh, praying. (laughs) Resting in the spirit. Resting in the spirit. Don't disturb me. But what if in, in, in antiquity itself, two or three men, or it may be a city or even a whole province be detected in error? Remember my friend who found... That practice he wanted to justify was done for a certain period of church history in Alexandria. And he said, ah, look, a whole province of the ancient church did this for a time. My argument was, but that practice um, never became normative or was never received by the whole church east and west. So if you object to the one above and say, well, what happens if you find... You, you know, one or two errors in some of the fathers, where well, you're going to look to the greater mind, where they speak with one voice, not just one or two. Then he will take the greatest care to prefer the decrees of ancient general councils, those are the ecumenical councils, if there are such, to the irresponsible ignorance of a few men. That's what I love about Vincent. He's very subtle. Very subtle. Okay. But what if some error arises regarding which nothing of this sort is to be found? Like cloning, for example. Well, let's refer to the Bible on uh, cloning. What, uh, what passage would that be? Well, okay, uh, the Bible doesn't talk about it, so let's look to the fathers. Uh, which father dealt with the whole problem of cloning? See the problem? So then what do you do? Well, basically, to give you a break, I'll summarize for you. What he says is, you have to carefully take the principles of Holy Scripture and where the fathers speak with one voice and apply them to what you're dealing with in the moment. And, of course, if you don't move, act unilaterally, but move together as the body of Christ, the body of Christ will remain intact. Okay. All right. That is the Vincentian Canon. I can't tell you how many kids, when I've taught this to them at the St. Michael's Conference, write to me or call me or email me or come up and talk to me and say, this has changed the whole way I look at everything. Because I used to think, okay, I do believe what my dad teaches or mom teaches or what my church teaches, 
but now I know why. And the big thing is that it's not Anglicanism in and of itself that I believe. It's the Catholic Church under the authority of the Bible that I believe. Joan? Since the, the Protestant Reformation, it would appear that splinter groups have gone off and I don't even know if you call the Mormons a splinter group. <laughs> no. It's a whole different religion. But, I mean, they haven't, they haven't gone with their Book of Mormon and all that stuff that goes along with it to the greater church, have they? And said, well, it's a different religion. we want you to accept, would you please review it? No, they think we need to become Mormon. They, they see themselves as, as having the truth of the Christian religion. We are not in. We need to become Mormon. So they're not going to consult us. Uh, on that on that issue. But when the splinter groups go off and make and, and I thought Yeah, what happens, yeah, is they, they just make their own Yes. And, well well we'll get into this when we look at the Catholic the Catholic nature and and uh, evangelical character of Anglicanism that you'll see the difference between how a denomination acts and how a tradition of the greater Catholic Church acts. And they act in two different ways when dealing with issues. The problem with the Episcopal Church was they began acting like an American Protestant denomination rather than a fellowship within the greater Catholic Church or a tradition within the greater Catholic Church. So they really lost sight of who they are. And when you don't know who you are, it, it, it's, you know, it leads to the, the great difficulties that we have experienced. So let's uh, take a uh, uh, five-minute break or so, stretch, go for a walk, breathe in some cold air, splash your face, and then we'll come back and, and continue our study on uh, Scripture and tradition. And by the way, uh, this is going to go fast because by the time we get back, it will be 10 of 3, so we only have about an hour left and uh, still plenty to cover. So. <laughs> 